Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by a special guest, although he's not so special lately because you, you've been with us the past few times. Dr. Austin Baraki, what's going on, man? Hey, I'm, uh, I guess I'm on a streak being the being the main guest again. <laughs> I, I, I'm thankful to have you. This is episode 166. This is our January 2022 month in review of research. Again, if this is your first Barbell Medicine podcast or you haven't listened to some of our previous editions of this style of podcast, basically Austin and I send each other triggering posts from social media on a regular basis. But in addition to that, a more productive use of our time is sharing studies with each other uh, and just other interesting findings that we come across, either people sending them to us. Twitter is a big source for you, I know. And then you know, by proxy, I get those things. And then, uh, yeah, we're just uh, constantly trying to seek out new information and uh, get a little bit better. So this is uh, the podcast version of like, what have we come across in the last month um, that, that we felt like was uh, important. Uh, but before that, you know, little life update. If you don't, if you aren't on other social media channels, then you don't know this. But uh, on Wednesday, I was out riding my dirt bike. I got recently got back into dirt bikes. Previously had a long, I wouldn't say storied unless we're using the, uh, the term very charitable, charitably <laughs> storied career, uh, racing dirt bikes. Anyway, I got back into it and uh, had a, a pretty substantial crash. Ended up dislocating my shoulder. Um, I know it was dislocated because the what it looked like when I, uh, uprighted myself out of the mud that I had landed in off this jump. So I was like pretty confident that it was an anterior dislocation. Uh, and I reduced it myself, uh, which is less pleasant than it sounds, but whatever it's got to get, had to get done. And then, um, yeah, when I subsequently got an x-ray, there was like a small, it looked like a, what they, I mean, they call it a hill sacs lesion, which is basically a compression fracture of the head of the humerus on it when you anteriorly dislocate uh, the humerus in the shoulder. And it happens somewhat frequently, but I guess the size of it and the symptoms that you have associated with it kind of determine like what you end up doing about it. So he, he was like, oh, that's not even enough to worry about. And I go, good. I wasn't worried oh, until <laughs> <laughs> you told me it was there. But, uh, you know, I was talking with Dr. Ray and he's like, uh, are you going to get an MRI? And I'm like, why? He's like, I'd be curious what your labrum kind of looks like after that. And I'm like, I mean, I assume that it was chewed up before just based on, you know, all the stuff that I've done. Not that I've had a bunch of shoulder pain because that's not true necessarily, but effectively since I'm four days, whatever, three days post trauma and I have, you know, full range of motion, even though my strength isn't a hundred percent, I don't even know what percentage I would say the 20% maybe. You just uh, haven't probably tested it too aggressively yet. I dwell yesterday. I did a push up, and I could do a push up. Oh, okay. uh, the day before when I tried to do a push up, I face planted. So I really am just this linear progression of my shoulder strength. I assume <laughs> tomorrow I'll be able to do a handstand push up. The day after that, I'll probably do a planche. And the day after that, I'll probably be able to do strict ring muscle ups. I assume that's how this goes. Yeah, you'll be back doing an iron cross on the rings or something. <laughs> that's right. Smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Still holding. <laughs> so yeah, that's what's been going on uh, with me. What's uh, What's new with you? Um, I am currently preparing for, uh, preparing my house basically to sell and we're going to be moving later this summer because my wife is uh, active duty military getting restationed. So we're going to be moving. Uh, currently it's looking like we're going to be moving to El Paso, San Diego, West California, <laughs> San Diego, California. Yeah, oh, it's not, not San Diego. <laughs> 
so yeah, prepping prepping for that. It's going to be a big year, making some moves there, career moves, some other some other stuff that's happening. So that's uh, that's awesome, man. I mean, it's technically closer to San Diego, so I guess that's yeah, good. exactly. <laughs> we'll be living together for the first time in a few years, which is nice. Probably harder to get to. I assume the the airport in El Paso is apparently has a good reputation, but uh, I don't know. We'll find out. Yeah, to, to be determined. <laughs> when we schedule our seminars, you'll be like, actually, I can't get there because it, it's going to take me a whole day of travel. So it's not yeah. going to work. Um, in any case, well, cool. I'm excited to do this. The, these, the last one we did was really enjoyable. And I think, again, this just kind of gives the our, gives our audience a peek behind the curtain into like, you know, how do we go find new information? And then like, what do we do with it? Uh, so just kind of sharing some stuff that we've been going over the last month or so. The first thing I want to start with the, has to do with your three-part cholesterol series that re- that got published within the last month over on the Barbell Medicine website. Effectively, uh, the first two parts are basic guides to cholesterol, like not only what is cholesterol, what are lipoproteins. So when you hear the term like LDL, uh, HDL, we're really talking about lipoproteins of varying densities. And, uh, well, you know, if you read those articles, you already know that you like, get to the point. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll link those in the description below. And then part three is more of like, these are common questions, common. Um, well, what about, uh, yeah, that's in there. And so you can read the thing top to bottom straight through, uh, or you can use it as a reference text. There's a, you know, clickable table of contents. You can download the thing as a PDF, multiple uh, ways to get that information into your brain hole. Uh, But I wanted to talk about it in addition to this. uh, It looked like it was like a PowerPoint presentation uh, that Dr. Dayspring, uh, who I'll let you give a little background about, did on low-density lipoprotein. Um, Just It kind of helps tie the room together as far as like how important this stuff is and how like the crux of the argument that like your cholesterol doesn't matter. (laughs) It's just such a crazy argument compared to the you know the actual evidence we have right now anyway so i'll let you kind of take the wheel on this one and we can we can talk about it yeah so you i mean i think i shared this slide with you dr dayspring is a lipidologist which is basically a he's a physician uh but lipidologists are are physicians or, or scientists who are specifically trained in this field of blood lipids blood cholesterol as they relate to heart disease and stuff like that so he's one of the guys who is uh, still around and active now, who has probably been around the longest. Uh, com- and uh, next to him would be uh, Dr. Snyderman, Alan Snyderman. The two of them are probably the longest standing. I mean, they have papers, even many of which that I referenced in the article series that are going back many decades at this point. So they are some of the, the OGs in this, in this scene. And so the paper that kind of got our attention this uh, most recently was actually one that was published in the winter um, from Dr. Snyderman, where he basically <laughs> made the case just talked about this apolipoprotein B, which is one of the particles that I mentioned um, in the initial uh, part one and two of the cholesterol series, came up a bunch in part three as well as being a really important blood marker. Um, and it's unfortunately one that has not been historically recognized clinically. And what I mean by the word clinically there is like the doctor who sees you as a patient, um, they are less familiar with this test compared to like us nerdy people, people who are into this stuff, the scientists, the researchers were kind of much more aware of this. And as we mentioned in the cholesterol podcast we did last time, this test is becoming better recognized, but a lot of it is, you could say, is from people like Dr. Snyderman who are publishing constantly hammering people to like, hey, pay attention to this, to this test, use this, use this value. It's a better marker of people's heart disease risk um, over the, over the long term. 
compared to just, for example, like a total cholesterol number has has use, uh, but it is limited in many ways and imperfect in many ways. And so incrementally, you know, we have improved upon it uh, by discovering other things that we can measure in the blood and correlating them with risk and then trying to manipulate them and see if that alters people's risk, uh, which is exactly what's been done in, you know, all the research on um, things that t- tend to increase these blood levels and increase heart disease risk. And then what we do to decrease them also, you know, decreases heart disease risk and stuff like that. So, um, this, this paper from November, 2021, where Dr. Steinemann's the subtitle of the paper was basically the debate is over. Like <laughs> the people, despite ongoing bickering about the role and relevance of, of these tests and markers and cholesterol in general, um, you know, the, the evidence it's, I was actually talking about this with Dr. Nadolsky recently, our friend, Spencer. Nadolsky and how it's quite frustrating to keep getting sucked into arguments on this with people who don't actually, uh, who haven't actually read the evidence as, as broadly or seen like how all the different kind of, as we say, the different lines of evidence kind of converge on a similar conclusion. So I had somebody who came into my DMs actually last month and I shared this with, with Tom who had read the article, who, who had not read the articles. He just saw like a story post about it. So he started saying, how can you write this article when all the epidemiology is just a bunch of junk data? And that was his like, and I'm like, okay, I don't know that I could have this conversation uh, because there's a lot that we'd have to, you know, we'd have to get. Basically, you can't discuss with somebody when you're not on this, when you don't uh, have a consensus on like a shared set of facts that you're operating based off of. So, well, it's a, yeah, asymmetrical, uh, you know, knowledge yeah. base, right? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. well, if you want me to bring you to bridge that gap. There, there are two ways to do this. One is like you're communicate at playing the role as a scientific communicator, right? And someone's effectively giving you some level of trust for you to kind of start the conversation, provide, you know, knowledge. And then, yes, there can be follow-up questions and it's a dynamic process there, right? So that's like one way to do this. The other way is, oh, you're the actual educator and this is like a formal course yeah. <laughs> and, and someone is like trying to get up to your level, you know, through that formal training. And then afterwards you can kind of have this discussion like peer to peer. Right. But if neither of those things are happening and somebody's just a, a dissenter, you're like, well, what are we doing here? Yeah. 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 Needless to say, it was not the most productive exchange. Ultimately got the guy to at least agree. He said he would read the articles and said he would have an open mind on it. I said, cool. That's all I'd be looking for. (laughs) So we left it at that. (laughs) I'm sure I'm sure he returned to the comment after having read the article with commentary. Uh, No. Oh, they did. Uh, Yeah. Surprise. (laughs) Surprise. 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 Yes. Okay. So anyway, what is this slide we thought I thought was super interesting one because it uses the term quadrillion, which is, uh, I mean, that's the biggest number I've ever like, or factor that I've ever seen written. (laughs) Like, what is a quadrillion? It's like 10 to the 18th, you know, power. Yeah, yeah. So, so the estimate, basically, if we're measuring the number of, we were talking about low density lipoprotein particles. Uh, and so if you measure those, the, the number of those particles, a normal LDL particle number um, might be a thousand nanomoles per liter. And that actually ends up translating to 600 quadrillion LDL particles per liter of blood, which is a just... It's not something that I can wrap my mind around sure, that yeah. many particles that are in, in a liter. And, you know, we have five liters, give or take, of, of blood. Um, and so, you know, this ends up being a pretty massive uh, amount. You can, you can even translate this into the total number of particles in the body and all in all, just absolutely massive numbers. Yeah. It basically, again, it makes the case that you may find additional information 
from additional lipid testing, like getting an apolipoprotein B test versus yep. just your standard lipid, lipid panel, which we discuss in detail, not only in the cholesterol articles you posted, but also in our last podcast, the lipid podcast. Uh, I will link the paper in the description below as well from uh, Snyderman. Mm-hmm. And then uh, hopefully you guys will, if we just keep pushing these cholesterol papers, <laughs> people, I assume that people will read them. We'll find out. We'll come yeah. back. We'll we'll have to poll our audience like six months from now. Be like, hey, uh, so <laughs> did you get your did you get checked? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. And especially uh, for like you know knowing how our feelings are and what we've written and said and recorded about screening in general, like we tend to be fairly skeptical or conservative on like screening and testing and diagnosis in general. Mm-hmm. Doing just testing for the sake of testing is for sure not something that we recommend people doing. Imaging, all that stuff. If there's not a very good reason for it. And at the same time, it's like people, the, the stuff that actually matters, people aren't really getting screened enough for. So it's like yeah. blood pressure, blood lipid, stuff like that. So, Yeah, people would rather go get their zinc, blood zinc levels measured than like manage their cholesterol. It's <laughs> right. like, come on, guys. More yeah. on that. More on that later. Um, <laughs> another paper that uh, got sent to me and you, I think you actually sent it to me. It was from the January uh, issue of JAMA Internal Medicine. This is a... Uh, this comes out of the National Cancer Research uh, Institute. Uh, this is on physical activity. So basically, they took uh, data that was collected from 2003 to 2006 in uh, adults 40 to 85 years old, almost 5,000 people who wore this accelerometer for seven days. Accelerometer is basically like a less cool, less aesthetically pleasing version of a Fitbit or Apple Watch or whatever. It just tells you how many. Well, they actually count movements and then they can take like how many movements were done per unit time and see how active an individual was. And actually, it's pretty decently uh, accurate. It's decently accurate. So um, in any case, then they followed up mortality for uh, just about 11 years. Um, So through December of 2015. And no surprise here that the more physically active people were. And particularly the change in physical activity seemed to reduce premature mortality. So uh, if you uh, increased physical activity over this the follow-up period by 10 minutes, you had a, a reduction in premature mortality. And then that was a little bit less than if you increased physical activity by 20 minutes or 30 minutes uh, per day. And so if we did this on a population level, if we did this on a population level, you would present or prevent about 110,000 preventable deaths per year just by increasing the physical activity in adults who could be physically active by 10 minutes per day. So basically, if somebody was um, had a disability uh, or some other sort of medical condition that precluded their ability to actually participate, they didn't include that in the population. Uh, and then if you increase people's activity by 30 minutes per day, you'd present, prevent almost 275,000 preventable deaths per year. Like, okay, no surprise. Like, uh, increasing physical activity is helpful. Small increase in activity would be beneficial. More is probably better. But what interested me about this paper was that like 20, 10 minutes a day, increasing physical activity by 10 minutes a day is so small, right? Where And you have people who are like, no, you got to resistance train. You got to do intervals. You got to, and also don't forget to stretch, spend time doing mobility and like get your meditation on and, I don't, you know, look, there's a lot of different health promoting behaviors that we can recommend, but like most of society 
is not getting anywhere near enough physical activity. And we just need to get it up a little bit, just get it up a little bit and nudges, shoves, policies that do those things to get to uh, allow people to participate in more physical regular physical activity would be helpful here. Not like a super inclusive program that's going to tell you how to live every single minute of your life and take you from zero to, you know, two hours a day of physical activity. It just needs to be a little bit for health purposes. Performance purposes, you want to chase that, you know, that sharp point, you know, a point at the end of the, <laughs> at the tip of the spear. Sure. You're going to need more, but like just 10 minutes a day. So I think, I don't know, I kind of think I circle back here when you're, when you're the physicians, when you're. You hear the standard, well, you should just walk more. It's like, I mean, that's not terrible advice. I, I, I think telling people what to do is not the behavioral change, pro, you know, thing that I'd, I'd want to happen. But yeah, that's probably insufficiently specific and doesn't really account for a ton of aspects of the behavior change process. But the idea of, of that would probably improve population health. I think that if you're going to be a stickler looking at this paper and say it's not randomized, there's potential for reverse causation going on, meaning that like people who have chronic diseases or who are sicker, more likely to die are going to be less physically active because of their disease state. And so that's going to, you know, contribute to some of these associations. I think that's a, you know, certainly an argument that can be made if we didn't have other data from other places uh, that were perhaps randomized with exercise interventions showing, you know, improvements in cardiometabolic health, improvements in risk factors for premature death and stuff like that. So there, there certainly can be components of, um, you know, uh, uh, confounding by other factors, reverse causation kind of stuff going on in these types of observational data. But at the same time, there's also very likely to be a true signal coming, you know, from the fact that, hey, at this point, uh, you know, as, as with the last paper we discussed, where it was quote, the debate was over for, for the apolipoprotein B piece. So similarly, the idea that, uh, you know, exercise, uh, can improve various aspects of health. Uh, also the debate is over there too. Yeah, um, hopefully. And, 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 and my, yeah, and much like, uh, uh, much like, much like our conversation on the last podcast, you remember when we were talking about, uh, medications, for example, for lowering blood cholesterol and how we said that the, the lowest dose gets you actually the the most majority of the effect that you can get. And then increasing the dose further will get you additional effects. But of course, there's kind of, you know, decreases in the marginal return, you know, in in uh, in, in each uh, increment that you go up, you're going to get smaller additional benefit. And obviously, you know, that is very likely to be the case here as well. The first 10 minutes of exercise are going to get you pretty substantial benefits. Of course, you know, we don't know exactly where that uh, threshold of, of diminishing returns is. And it's very unlikely to be one set point for all people <laughs> across mm -hmm. all ages, across, you know, time, there's tons of stuff that would go into where that might be for a given person, probably some of it's genetic, some of it's, you know, outside of their control, some of it's in their control. But uh, uh, certainly getting people who are very, very sedentary or insufficiently active to be more active by effectively any amount is is likely to, um, particularly on a population level result in detectable decreases in, you know, risk for disease and death. Yeah, yeah, I think, and this actually reminds me of one of our podcasts that we did back in like, oh man, this might've been 16 or 17, uh, when we were talking about, you know, you're probably not overtrained. Most people in fact are undertrained because mm -hmm. you know, the, one of the take homes from this paper is like, you know, more is better, more activity is better. Mm -hmm. And that is especially true when you're talking about people who are insufficiently active, not yet meeting the current physical activity guidelines for activity. And it probably goes up to again. Yeah. Like you said, an individual 
individualized sort of point where above that you're probably not getting much and may actually increase risk of like, you know, an arrhythmia of some sort. That's like one of the things that can happen um, in people who are very, very active, although not everyone, certainly uh, just it's, it's highly unlikely though, that people, especially on a population level are just, Oh, we're just doing too much exercise. Honestly, that's, that's our biggest problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Our, honestly, if that was our country's biggest problem or any, like any community's biggest problem, like, yeah, yeah, they just exercise too much. Like that would be a cool problem to have. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like, man, I, I can only dream actually not to get too controversial, but like one of my issues with closing down the gyms during quarantine was like, guys, if you look at the actual data on how many people not only just have gym memberships, but actually like go to the gym. Like we're talking about such a small portion of the population. And even when, the, you know, the reach goes out, yes, it's bigger, but it's not that big. Cause it's just not that many people uh, and the population that goes to the gym and the potential, you know, the known benefits of going to the gym versus closing these things down. I'm like, that seems to be a much stickier kind of topic. You know, if you're really trying to make a good decision now, I'm not a policymaker and I do, you know, yeah. cannot <laughs> predict all these other, you know, things, but it's like, if we had a problem with too many people going to the gym and that represented a huge lever to pull for like, you know, pandemic mitigation, so be it. But that is not the case in, in the United States, in most communities, um, maybe geographically in certain areas where people, you know, there's like just super dense, high uses of the gyms, maybe that changes, but I've not seen that place yet. I'm what i you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. waiting. I'm waiting. Yeah. All right. In keeping with the physical activity theme, this uh, paper actually got sent to me by one of my clients. He's a cardiologist and this paper is cool. It's called dose response association between moderate to vigorous physical activity and incident morbidity and mortality for individuals with a different cardiovascular health status, a cohort study among 142,493 adults from the Netherlands. So this was published in December of 2021. The Public Library of Science is a multi-center research group uh, study based on 140,000 adults in the Netherlands. So basically, they collected data between 2006 and 2018. They followed up these individuals for seven years. Um, they stratified them based uh, on their health status and risk for uh, cardiovascular disease. So they were either classified as healthy, had having cardiovascular risk factors or with apparent cardiovascular disease. They also classify these individuals at physical activity into different quartiles. So they had uh, basically those in the highest quartile or fourth, uh, then they had the next highest, uh, next lowest, and then the lowest amount of physical activity. The follow-up uh, was for major adverse cardiac event and all-cause mortality. So as you might expect, the event rate overall, so the amount of adverse cardiac events, so heart attack, stroke, things like that, was lowest in the healthy folks, 2.2%, uh, moderate in, the, in those with cardiovascular risk factors, 7.9%, and then 40.9% in those with apparent cardiovascular disease. Uh, moderate to vigorous physical activity was associated with risk reductions in all groups, uh, but especially in those with apparent cardiovascular disease. So uh, those with apparent cardiovascular disease and those with risk factors should be advised that physical activity is beneficial and more is better. So that's not really anything new. That's all kind of like, duh. But the important part of this paper was basically the type of physical activity seemed to matter. So the association between moderate to vigorous physical activity and the risk of cardiovascular disease or mortality uh, tended to be domain specific. 
leisure activities, uh, which is basically exercise, formal activity, formal structured exercise, were associated with the most benefits. Non-leisure activities, which tends to be activities of daily life around the home, uh, were associated with little benefits. And then occupational physical activity was basically associated with no benefits. Basically, it, there's a relationship there. The more physically active people are, the lower the risk of cardiovascular disease tends to be, provided that most of that activity is coming from leisure activities. So again, that sort of structured activity. And and the easiest way to kind of like discern that is by how difficult the activity is. Uh, is it at least three mets of activity? Um, and so what is a three met activity? Well, by definition, it's an activity that increases your energy expenditure three times above baseline. Um, and then in the, the current physical activity guidelines, uh, the cut point for moderate intensity aerobic activity is four metabolic units. So just, I, I've included the, this compendium, this 2011 compendium of uh, metabolic ratings for various physical activities. Have you ever looked at that chart, Austin? I don't think so. At least maybe not it is, you're talking about. <laughs> it is oddly specific, <laughs> oddly specific. So they have like probably 50 different entries for walking. Like you could be walking firm surface, two and a half miles an hour. You could be walking backwards, carrying a 15 pound pack mm. <laughs> uphill, like whatever. Um, so just some uh, examples, like they have a curves exercise routine for women in there. It expends three and a half Mets, uh, or is a, a three and a half Met activity. So that would fit the criteria here, uh, walking at uh, two miles an hour or so, which is a rather slow walk. It's, it's probably slower than what you would normally walk for exercise would not work here. Um, the main again, takeaway here is that the relationship between physical activity and cardiovascular disease or mortality is domain specific. So these leisure activities were associated with the most benefits. That means again, like formal exercise or planned, you know, activities versus non-leisure activities had a small benefits, um, little benefits is how they, they say it in the paper. So that's stuff like at work, occupational activity at, you know, around the house, um, had uh, little to no benefits. Uh, my biggest surprise also in that chart, the compendium was that dance dance revolution, which you know, argue, arguably one of the best fitness games to ever come out was was worth 7.2 Mets. That's pretty impressive. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's like a vigorous resistance training. It's about yeah, like I mean, I guess if most most of the songs, if I remember, were uh, like techno kind of stuff, right? Like high tempo, upbeat kind of stuff, right? Which is yeah. going to definitely get you moving. They're not slow dancing on there. Right. I wonder if, you know, how many like stress fractures that people got, like by like, <laughs> you're like pounding on the mat on a hard floor, you know, really trying to get your vigorous steps in. I don't know. Uh, and then just the last part on this is that uh, walking, most people prefer their self-selected walking speeds around three miles an hour. And that is right at this sort of cut point for moderate activity. It's about four, about four Mets. So again, Yes, being more active is more better, but we would prefer that this activity is done at sufficient doses and sufficient intensity. So it's not like, you know, I think people will get in the habit, especially my dad. This is like the example that always comes to mind. I'd be like, oh, did you go to the gym today? Did you work out? He's like, ah, I mowed the lawn. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. I understand that mowing the lawn can be fatiguing, right? Particularly if it's warm outside, but I don't think that that's generating the health benefits 
that are associated with the fatigue, right? There are a lot of things that can be very fatiguing that don't generate like health or performance benefit. Um, so I would want to make sure that people are carving out time or that if they're carving out time for activity, which they, we hope they are, that they're doing it at a sufficient intensity and getting the most bang for their buck. So it doesn't mean that you have to go to failure, you have to do sprints or, you know, whatever, but like it probably can't be curves and it, and mowing the lawn unless maybe like you live on a hill and it's like super steep and you're like, <laughs> yeah. And the mechanisms for this are probably more than just the physical stuff or the physiological stuff that happens. And, and, you know, cause you, we, you point out that, that observation, which I've actually cited before in my sarcopenia lecture, that it seems that a lot of the benefits from, you know, from this kind of physical activity, uh, tend to be greater when it's leisure time activity. And a lot of those benefits either, diminish or disappear when it's all occupational, you know, physical activity. Like when you have somebody who is like very, like a physical laborer for their job. And then when you ask them what they do for exercise, they say, well, I'm very active at my job and it's, I, I, I get it. And that's not to say that the job is not hard or something like that, but, and, and I don't know that we even have a great explanation for, for, you know, exactly why we don't see as many health benefits from that type of physical activity. I, if I had to guess, I suspect that there's some kind of complex, you know, psychobiological thing where it's yeah. like when you are feel like you have to do it, maybe it's more stressful, um, you know, when you're in that situation versus more leisure time comes with other psychological, psychobiological benefits or whatever the case sure. is that mediate some of these, some of these effects that are probably beyond our ability to, to measure, you know, certain molecules or something that would, that would cause the benefit. Um, and definitely it's also easier said than done to say, oh yeah, just carve out more time for leisure activity, particularly if people work a ton of hours or they work multiple jobs. It's not always super feasible for people, but that also, as we've said before, it's something like our nutrition podcast that starts to get towards much bigger policy, policy questions <laughs> that, yeah. that, that, that we can't really get too far into or touch. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the research reviews that we, that I, uh, that I did was based, basically looking at the relationship between socioeconomic status, physical activity you know, meeting the guidelines and then all and health outcomes is kind of like a relationship and, and a very similar relationship here. It's like, yeah, people in lower socioeconomic statuses, lower income levels tend to have higher ac occupational activity levels and lower leisure time activities. And that portends worse health outcomes than those with the same amount of total physical activity. Like if we're, if we're calling, you know, everything is equal, uh, but did more but if they did more uh, leisure time activity versus occupational activity. So there's, you know, some of that in there too. Well, cool. We mentioned COVID. We mentioned some policy changes. We mentioned socioeconomic status stuff. It's going to be great. Great. Uh, but yeah, link that paper and the Met Compendium in the description below as well. If you are ever curious, like, am I meeting the current physical activity guidelines? Uh, here's a quick and dirty. Are you resistance training twice a week or more? If so, cool. Check that box. Then I need to ask you about how much dedicated conditioning so that can be aerobic or anaerobic sort of conditioning or cardio that you're doing per week. If you're doing more than 150 minutes, that's just over two hours of dedicated conditioning work, then cool. You're good to go. You're, you, I, I don't need to know. You don't need to answer any more questions. Um, if you're doing uh, a little bit less than that from like planned conditioning, planned exercise uh, and want to see if all of your activities that you're doing regularly participating in through the week match up or meet up, uh, match the current guidelines or exceed them, you need to check out the MET compendium chart.
Because there's some stuff that you're probably doing in there that would count as physical activity that would go towards the recommended amount of physical activity. Um, and then again, j it's just funny looking through the item, like the different items in there. I, I look, there's some sex stuff in there, Austin, and, and not just one. Again, oddly specific, oddly specific. So I'll let you guys find those Easter eggs. Those are fun. Uh, moving on to the next few things that have uh, crossed our paths. This has more to do with training and the age old discussion. What is the relationship between muscular size and strength? So here's the premise. The premise is that resistance training, strength training in particular, is often performed to increase both muscle size and strength. Uh, when you look at the literature on this stuff, uh, they often examine changes in size and strength after training and frequently uh, both increase. Both size and strength increase. Uh, most of the time that's when they're using heavier weights. So loads above 70% of a one RM and that this relationship is assumed to be causative. So muscle strength is driven by the muscular hypertrophy. That's the premise here. The problem is there's little experimental data showing this relationship, meaning that changes in muscular size cause greater increases in strength. And so this is kind of a new argument that's kind of emerged in the last few years. Dr. Lenicky kind of like brought this to light, although he is not necessarily the first person to ever say this. Um, and looking back at some of the data that he's cited, I'm like, man, people have been talking about this for a while and we still really don't have enough good data to like answer the question, like how related are muscular size and strength from a causative standpoint. So we're going to add a little bit of nuance here. This is a study that came out this month, January, 2022, uh, by Lanza, uh, at Allen. I'll link you to the abstract. There is no way that I know for people to uh, borrow this paper without institutional access. Um, so sorry for that. I actually bought it. I spent the money. I spent $35 today. Oh, I know. I mean, you, you, you know some people who have institutional access. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes in the with the like latest issue, it's just not up on the server yet, mm -hmm. not available. So and I don't want to like call in some favors, especially on, a, you know, over the weekend, like, hey, man, can you like log in? And they're like, oh, I forgot my password because they, 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 they do what we do. They go to Sci-Hub. Anyway. Um, OK. I don't know so what that is. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't look that up. So this study, this study took 23 young dudes, uh, probably, I assume, just exercise science students, and they were going to get extra credit in their class. Uh, and they took MRI, MRI images of their PEC major. Uh, now. Previous studies uh, have used MRI images of muscles to try to correlate how, what role uh, or how related muscular volume and muscular cross-sectional area were with strength. Uh, normally, they take a ton of images and they use either the average volume, like the volume that they calculate through 3D modeling or like the average area. It, they, they do some calculation with all these images. They were trying to use three images, just three. The idea is like that you'd be able to do three basically. slices. Exactly. Okay. They were trying to do this faster, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, just three slices. No big deal. Um, and see what the predictive power was effectively. So on average, they spit out 18 different images and they use three of them. They use the first one, the last one and the big and the one in the center basically. And then they either average them all. They use the one with the biggest cross-sectional area and just saw like how correlated are these with their one rep max bench press. Now here's where things get kind of stupid. They did this, they did the one RM bench press on a Smith machine. And I'm like, why? <laughs> 
but okay, maybe you're in a research setting and you're like, you feel this is the safest way for people to like not hurt themselves by using a Smith machine. That's probably not true, but like okay. We've, like we've like we've said in other contexts, when they st use studies on the like on the lake extension or like press to take away the skill component. I mean, that would be my guess. If these are uh, if the, if there's untrained people, um, they may not be able to control the yeah. free weight as as well. Um, so yeah, my more skill in, involved. I agree. My argument would be that I, then I would just do a chest press if you had access to it over a Smith machine, because the Smith machine still like bench press still has some skill component to but if they don't have a chest press all they got is the smith machine like i, I guess this is what That's we're fine. doing <laughs> then what they did is they standardized the grip that people were using they basically took they call it twice the biacromial distance so the distance between your two acromion processes processes and they said this is going to be your grip you're gonna put your middle finger on these marks on the barbell and it's like so if you've ever seen a powerlifting meet you know that people use different grips based on their you know, preferences, style, training history, whatever, the idea that you would use the same grip across all people, even if they're untrained, right? I understand you're trying to standardize this, but that's not really like a thing that probably needs to be standardized. I'd like to see people just using their own self-selected grip, right? That are kind of within the bounds of some like normal constraints, like, all right, this is a closer grip. This is a slightly wider grip, but whatever. Because it's like, we're going to put everybody at that grip. And it's like, why though? Whatever. That's what they did. Uh, and then they, so then they measured people's one RM. They basically had them go up by at least two kilos until they failed. So that seems fine. And then they also measured their maximum voluntary uh, force production at about half uh, the ha halfway up point. They basically told people to push on the Smith machine as hard as they could about halfway up uh, for five seconds. And they got a, a, a force production value. So long story short, 23 bros, young bros, three images, MRI of their pec major. And then they had the strike data, the one RM strength uh, on bench press, Smith machine bench press, and then their isometric max isometric strength at about partial range of motion. And lo and behold, the R value, the correlational strength was very, very high, very, very high. So between the one RM and muscle, muscle volume. And again, this is from three slices versus many slices. They normally spit out, you know, close to 20 slices of a pec major was 0.85. Uh, the max cross-sectional area of any of the images, the correlation between that and the one RM strength was 0.73. These are all high R values. So saying the correlation is very strong. And so there's more data here, but the, the take home is like, yes, muscle volume, muscle size is correlated with strength. Like, yeah, in a, in a cross-sectional area, I have no counter argument to that at all. Right. And these people were untrained. The average bench press was 58 kilos in these young bros that weighed 70 plus kilos. Right. So they weren't benching body weight. It's like, which is hey, fine. No judgment on that. But I'm just like, I don't how like, yeah, I would rather this see. This doesn't seem to add a ton. Adds almost nothing in my <laughs> estimation, because we already know this to be the case. Right. It's like if you in a population, if you were trying to predict who's going to be the strongest at a task that they're untrained at or unskilled in you'd look for the person with the most muscle mass. That'd be the person. You're like, hey, lift this thing. And like, and, and then we're excluding anyone that's had any experience lifting that thing before, right? And you're like, lift this thing. Who's going to be best at it? Like, you're going to pick the most jacked person. <laughs> like, like, duh. 
Uh, so I, I, I don't really know, like again, people on the Instagrams and Facebooks have been making a big deal about this paper. Like this shows definitively that muscle size and strength are well correlated. It's like, who are you arguing against? I was not arguing. I just saw. No, I'm not asking you. I'm asking like these hypothetical people. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like nobody's really arguing. I think you're, you're, you're open this up by, you know, raising the, the, the comment or the counter argument that maybe that relationship is not directly causal in the way people think, which I think is an interesting question to consider. There's certainly multiple other factors that go into uh, uh, force production, strength performance at a particular task, tons of skill aspects, neurological stuff, because, I mean, you think about how much do people have the potential to improve upon their strength over the course of a training career, many, many multiples of their starting like level of, of strength on a given lift, but they're not increasing the amount of muscle they have by that many multiples over the course of their sure. training career. So there's a lot of other factors that are involved. Um, yeah, it doesn't seem to me like this adds a ton. I will say that I had not read this study before, you know, we, um, uh, you introduced it here on this podcast. I don't think that I have as big of an issue with the exercise modality or the grip with selection. In other words, I think that is super unlikely to like make a big oh, difference. Oh, it wouldn't have changed the results here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. And uh, all of this kind of fits with what you what you guess. Although you know those correlations uh, seem to be even is really strong with highly trained people in other data sets where maybe um, that was that was questioned here. But in other words people who have more lean body mass tend to perform better at tasks that they're untrained in. Like you said, that's not really a shock yeah. here. There, there is a relationship between the two, what direction the causality goes or, or uh, if there is such a thing was not, uh, we, we didn't get any closer to that answer with this. It seems. No, my, my biggest issue with the, the methodology here was that if this same research group does this in the future for like a prospective trial where they're going to measure hypertrophy outcomes and strength outcomes over a longer period of time and see like what the relationship is like don't use this shit don't don't make people smith machine bench i mean you can i guess but like don't fix their grip with at least um or like if some another research group goes yeah this sounds legit we're gonna use this methodology and they cite this one as like see that's that's a method that's previously been used and you're like yeah okay um the other thing that got me thinking about was that I think it's very clear that if you're looking at a population in the cross section, so at a single given point in time, there are going to be a number of muscle architecture variables that strongly correlate to strength. So like the muscle size, the muscle volume, fascicle length, joint moment arm distance, like all of these things. And there's data on all of this stuff as well show like that these various anatomical aspects of the muscle themselves correlate to strength performance, one RM performance in various tasks. Mostly it's chest press, leg extension and biceps curls, because as it turns out, most researchers are bros or want to be Easy bros. Easy to study. Yeah. And, and that's what I really meant. Yes. <laughs> sorry. That's what I meant. Easy to study. But the data longitudinal data where they're actually following these variables and trying to correlate them to strength is not as conclusive as you would want uh, uh want to see to be making these claims like yep muscle muscular size and muscular strength are super well correlated as far as training outcomes go at at a given point in time yet more jacked probably related to better prediction predictive value of strength performance sure but like how does that go over time so a few interesting studies uh maddox 
2017, uh, basically took a group of dudes and had, uh, for eight weeks had one group do four sets of eight to 12 reps to failure on leg extension and chest press, or for the same period of time, they did five heavy singles to try to get a new one RM each session, which I assume this is just Bulgarian bro training. They're like, oh, you want big biceps, do one RM curls. <laughs> <laughs> they did this for eight weeks. And predictably, at the end of the eight weeks, the group who did four sets of eight to 12 had more hypertrophy than the people who are just doing five singles multiple times per week because there's almost no hypertrophy in that group. But the strength increases were not different between groups. They both increased in strength about the same. So one group had big amounts of hypertrophy, the other none. Uh, and the strength increases were the same between both groups. Set, kind of showing like, huh, it shows two things. One thing is that, uh, you know, maybe that muscular hypertrophy doesn't correlate as well, at least in the short term, um, eight weeks being kind of short term uh, to muscular strength, but also like maybe you don't just need to do singles all the time to get better at a one rep max test. I think you should do some, but it yeah. doesn't have to be all singles, right? You don't need to take that experiment to its logical end. You're like, well, if singles are the best practice, why don't I just do all singles all the time? Like, I don't know. That'd be my preferred training methodology. <laughs> uh, another study. So that, that was on leg extension and chest press. Dankel in 2020 did the same exercise, but for biceps curls, which, you know, how many times biceps were mentioned in that paper? Zero. No. Zero. Really? Elbows flexion. Elbow flexion or elbow flexors. And I'm like, bro, say biceps once. <laughs> <laughs> say biceps once. In any case, same results. Much greater hypertrophy in the group doing four sets of eight to 12. Uh, but no difference between groups and strength. So the the end like argument, the take home Jerry's corner kind of thing here is like, again, at a given point in time, more lean body mass is probably going to be better for predicting strength performance, particularly in untrained and unskilled individuals. As people become more and more highly trained, highly skilled, or the task becomes highly skill dependent, you're, it, it's going to correlate less and less and less. I, I don't know like where that inflection point is. It doesn't even have to be that skilled of an environment. I mean, like, it's like, it's like, it's, it's, I've, I mean, I've personally gotten those comments like, oh, you lift more than you look like you can lift or something. It's like, uh, thanks. But uh, yeah. I, I, I get the idea. It's just, if you're very, very practiced at something and you've like, you know, nearly optimized some of those neurological, neuromuscular coordination type adaptations, then, um, you know, perhaps you may be able to outperform what your externally visible uh, musculature may appear to support. Yeah, you yeah, if I think if you can get people to accept the premise that like in high like that MMA example, and then you can keep like going back and back and say, yeah, and then sometimes at powerlifting meets you go get beat by a person who looks like a pizza delivery dude. <laughs> and you're like, no offense to pizza delivery guys. I'm just saying it's like, yeah, I also wonder, like, at what point will you will we stop getting the comments? You, you're strong for your size. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, do you just get strong enough, right? Or do you have to gain enough weight where like you lose that? I don't know. I'm, I'm over it. So now okay. my, yeah, well, so now my, my goal is to just get weak, like just keep hurting myself or no one's uh -huh. accusing me of being strong. So yeah. off, to a, <laughs> off to a great start. Uh, yeah. So my take on this overall here is that at a given point in time, unskilled, untrained, lean body mass, very predictive more trained, more skills. And certainly if you look at longitudinal stuff, like get bigger, get bigger muscles, lift heavier weights. I don't know that I feel super confident in that. Although I do think that most strength training that would actually make you stronger is likely to increase muscular size 
And so that may just be an artifact of the training. There's so much overlap between uh, resistance training for muscular strength improvement and resistance training for hypertrophy that it's unlikely that you're going to be able to get significantly stronger without getting larger. Although certainly if you focus on just getting bigger, you're likely to get more bigger. (laughs) Yeah. Any significant disagreements in there? I don't think so. I mean, I think if people are wondering like, okay, you guys are babbling a lot about this. What's like the important takeaway or why, why should I care about this? And, and I, a, I understand that question. B, (laughs) (laughs) I get it. I, be it, I think the, the, the area where it becomes relevant is questions that we've actually discussed a bit before on some prior episodes with respect to programming. Like, should you, if your goal, say, is one rep max strength performance, should you take extended periods of time? I'm going to take, you know, six months this year and just do pure bodybuilding only sets greater than 12 or something like that. And it's like, will you get bigger on that? Yes. Will you return to your powerlifting and immediately be stronger? Probably not, uh, you know, if you've allowed all those skills to decay. And so, yeah. you know, I've mentioned my own training. I've been doing singles on the main lifts twice a week, uh, every week for over a year now. And it's just a matter of like moderating the loads to allow me to tolerate that. And, uh, you know, I've experienced actually pretty darn good improvement, particularly on my, on my deadlift. And, um, I think I seem to be doing better than I did in the past where I did tons and tons and tons of rep work, taking extended periods of time away from singles. And so, you know, if that's your goal, you can do that. If you care less about top end one rep max performance, then you don't need to worry about doing singles as often or at all, potentially. Um, and then that that's also not to say that there's no reason to take time away and do that rep work because there's tons of other reasons, whether it's psychological or rehab or you just need a break or it's fun, whatever, you know, you just want to set some rep PRs in that way. Like there's, there's just, as, as we've said many times before, tons of ways to get strong. Uh, but that's kind of like the takeaway from this, um, as far as how, how it should impact your own training decisions. The addition I would make there is a second consideration would be like when to gain weight to get stronger. And it's like, if the supposition is you're going to gain a bunch of weight and therefore gain a bunch of muscle and then therefore be way stronger and then therefore be more competitive. <laughs> that's a, those are a lot of leaps. Yeah. A lot of leaps and uh, 10 out that's of 10. Like a, would... It's like a, a squid game bridge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, show me, show Careful. your work, yeah. show your work. But that's not a unique claim. Yeah, for sure. Anyway. All right. We've talked about that before. Uh, check out that podcast with Eric Helms as well on that. Cause we kind of go in deep there. Uh, okay. Hey, guess what? We get to talk about your favorite oh, vitamin, your favorite <laughs> hormone. Vitamin D back again. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back, Vitamin D, to the Arbo <laughs> Medicine Podcast. We cannot get enough of Vitamin D. Oh, boy. I just, you know, it's funny. I woke up and I, I appreciated our time difference um, because somebody had posted this study. Um, actually, one of my clients, super nice guy and super interesting. I see him all the time. He actually trains at Convoy. Like, I see him all the time. Uh, I have not seen him after he posted this because I'll be like, bro, come on. <laughs> you could have, you could have saved off. You could have just emailed me this thing. We could have, ta- you know, hashed it out, but whatever we're going to talk about it now. So he posted this study. It's the vital study on vitamin D. Uh, and I saw that your response was happened about 23 minutes before I woke up. And I'm glad that again, you were able to handle this before I was cogent <laughs> and, and cautious, uh, to, uh, to put together a response. So just background and then I'll let you, I'll let you kind of take over. So it was 25,000 subjects, mostly white, 70% white mean age was 67. This is a randomized double blind placebo controlled trial, uh, basically comparing the effects of vitamin D 
and fish oil or vitamin uh, vitamin D or fish oil versus placebo on autoimmune disease incidents. So I don't need to go too much in the weeds on the uh, the methodology here, but the basically they're comparing vitamin D and or fish oil to placebo and see and and follow these folks for five years and see what was the uh, relative what was the impact of taking these supplements or one of the supplements on how likely you were to get an autoimmune disease. So uh, then what happened, Austin? Yeah, this this study blew up uh, all over the place, including on Twitter, which is, as we said, where I um, tend to participate a lot in terms of academic discussions and coming across research and stuff like that. And did you, I assume you saw it there too. <laughs> so Harvard Medical School. So I don't, I think when I downloaded Twitter for the first time, I mean, this had to be while I was in my master's program. So maybe like 2008, 2009. And I think I just was like, I just wanted to follow all these, ac- what I thought were academic accounts at the time. So I'm following like Harvard Medical Letter. I'm following, you know, Johns Hopkins Public Health. And, and, and in general, many of these places put out like good public health messaging. But then some of the stuff that they post is just like, bro, what the fuck? And that, <laughs> and it's been great because I've just been sorry for cursing. I normally don't do that, but I just I've been getting triggered more and more recently with the level of crap that's been coming my way. But uh, yeah, it's just easy to unfollow. So I'm like, I don't ever want to see this again. Thank you for making this decision super easy for me. Yeah, it blew up though. Uh, also got picked up by like New York Times and stuff. Of course. And, and, you know, sometimes it's just people just uh, reporting like the top line result of the study with no other comment and leaving the audience to draw their own conclusions uh, about stuff. In which case, you know, how equipped is the audience to actually, you know, understand this, think about it, you know, critically understand limitations, stuff like that. Typically not super equipped mm-hmm. for that. So that tends to be the case with a lot of the vitamin D literature. Uh, we discussed it in great detail on a prior podcast on vitamin D we continue to feel that it is substantially overhyped. Um, we know that there are tons and tons and tons of massive association correlational data between vitamin D status and like almost every health outcome that you can think of. When I say, and just to emphasize the correlational relationships, the associations between having higher or low vitamin D on the risk of various bad things happening to you. But when you compare that, if you go instead and you find the prospective research, prospective meaning we start with people now and we supplement them and uh, we see what happens as a result, um, then that data suddenly tends to look a whole lot less impressive um, for those various health outcomes, including when you limit your search to data that is uh, that, in, that involves people who are deficient and then you improve their deficiency. So that's one criticism that we raised in the podcast is a lot of times the research We'll just take all comers and supplement them and see what happens. And it's like, well, okay, well, if they were sufficient, if their levels were fine at, at you know, at the start, then what did you expect was going to happen? Uh, but even when you look at, you know, a, a lot of data outside of like skeletal health, bone health stuff, um, where you start out with people who are deficient and you raise their levels, um, the, again, the effects that you see um, are often far less impressive than you would expect them to be based on the observational data. And they're sometimes negative altogether. So in this paper, there was some issues that I raised in our group discussion about the trial pre-registration that was seemed a little off to me, they, but there was, was actually a sec, there's actually a secondary registration a second one. where there's was the primary outcome. So you're okay. like, all right, all right. I see what you were doing there, but like, yeah, sneaky. Uh, and so the, the, 
some of the issues that that I had with this, number one is, well, I guess we can just comment on the results that when they had their vitamin D arm, there was 123 individuals who developed, quote, autoimmune disease in the vitamin D arm and 155 individuals who developed autoimmune disease in the placebo arm. And so this translated into what they deemed was a statistically significant decrease in risk uh, for the stats folks. The hazard ratio was 0.78. The confidence interval is 0.61 to 0.99, which obviously got my attention at the top end there. Um, but when I looked at the supplemental data for this, supplemental means you have to go out of your way to find this particular PDF, usually because of, say, paper length, word limits, whatever the case is for the journal. It's not due to something nefarious on the part of the authors. But if you go look in the supplemental data, I was like, okay, what are they? What are these actual autoimmune diseases? How often did each of them happen? And in the supplemental data, they can show you year by year how you know uh, many people were diagnosed in each group, vitamin D or placebo. The numbers are very low across the board. Again, remember, this was a pretty massive, like 25,000 person <laughs> person trial. And so we're looking like in year one, for example, of, of the study, the vitamin D group, 30 people were diagnosed with an autoimmune disease and 31 in the placebo group were diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. And, and similar trends carry on throughout the, the five years-ish of a follow-up. Um, so the numbers in general are very low. The next thing is that they included... 28 different autoimmune diseases in this general category of just autoimmune disease. And so this got my attention because it's kind of like uh, uh, other situations where people just talk about like, oh, humans need to cure cancer as if cancer is one <laughs> disease one yeah. when cancer is like thousands of different, there's so many different types of cancer. And then even within, like, if you just tell me that somebody had lung cancer, it's like, okay, I can think of like eight different kinds of lung cancer, each of which have a bunch of different subtypes um, to them that, you know, respond to different kinds of treatments. And they're, you, you, you should really just consider them to be different diseases. Um, and so when you look at this list of 28 different autoimmune diseases that are under this, uh, uh, in this category, not only are they wildly, completely different diseases with different mechanisms, with different treatments altogether, they're like, you know, in general, mostly unrelated conditions. Several of them are not necessarily autoimmune conditions at all. Some of them are things that can be set, you know, triggered by um, medications that patients are given or certain kinds of infections, things like that. Um, or they're just like a description of a symptom um, that, is, that is commonly associated or commonly observed in autoimmune uh, conditions, but may not be guaranteed to be, you know, pre a presentation of a primary autoimmune disease of its own, spontaneous in people. So there's a bunch of issues that I had with that in terms of, you know, you're, you're grouping a massive, he very heterogeneous list of conditions, not all of which I would argue are always necessarily autoimmune conditions. And then you're getting these like very, very low numbers. And all of that over the course of five years of supplementation translates into this, you know, difference in risk um, that is not massive between the two groups. And again, that, that 0.99 at the top end of the, you know, that, that caught my attention for sure. Because the point being that, Hey, like with very low numbers in this study, let's say that they hadn't picked one of these autoimmune conditions that's in their list, or they, they had not included or included or, or any one of these cases was judged, you know, the other way, just a very small flip from one group to another would probably be enough to translate this into a non you know, statistically significant result. Um, it's a concept called fragility um, uh, in these in these kind of uh, papers. And so it just raised my baseline skepticism about vitamin D. And again, think about, hey, like 
if we zoom out and we view this as like a big picture intervention, like suddenly we're going to have guidelines that say everybody should supplement vitamin D to reduce their risk of autoimmune disease. It's like, okay, we have this 25,000 people in this study. Um, uh, of course, not all of them are in the vitamin D arm, but like thousands and thousands and thousands of people all supplementing vitamin D every single day for five years. So that like 30 fewer people in one arm could get any number of these 28 different autoimmune diseases, one of them may, you know, have a, a fewer diagnosis compared to the other group. So I, this paper kind of annoyed me more than anything else. And, you know, I don't, I don't blame the guy who posted it. Your, your friend from the gym, he was, uh, you know, earnest in his question. Um, but I, you know, the question was like, does this change your recommendations? Would you, you know, suggest that people supplement for this reason? And it's like, no, this does not change my advice for healthy asymptomatic adults. Um, I would prefer that if we're going to do studies like this, looking at the influence of supplementation, uh, they be, of course, the good things about this placebo controlled, randomized, prospective, cool. I would prefer that we have, you know, uh, uh, numbers for their starting vitamin D levels, their ending vitamin D levels. And I would prefer that we focus on a particular disease state instead of lumping almost 30 different autoimmune diseases together into one giant category like this. Of course, the issue is then you know, like one of the autoimmune conditions, uh, let's, let's pick, uh, pick a miscellaneous one on here. Um, uh, granulomatosis with polyangiitis, uh, not a super common condition. One that I see, uh, now and then I saw a case a couple months ago down here, but, uh, if you wanted to get good data on the prevention of that, of conditions that are pretty uncommon, you're going to have to have big gigantic studies. So I understand the impracticality of it, but that doesn't necessarily make it better to just like lump everything in all together and say, you know, now we're just preventing all autoimmune disease, just like the same, you know, would be with, with cancer. Like if you told me that we reduced leukemia and then a bunch of other solid tumors and then like a bunch of sarcomas and like, you know, all these different kinds of malignancies that are completely different, different mechanisms, different, uh, you know, things like that, I'd be skeptical as well. Yeah, if it's if it appears to be a panacea, it's probably BS. So that's that's a good rule of thumb. Uh, I also like that the authors wrote none of the differences were statistically significant for the individual disorders. And you're like, yeah, of course not. <laughs> but yeah, because you'd have like five in one group and four in another. Like that's you yeah. know whatever. But you just yeah. have to lump them all together to get a big enough difference. A less sexy title. Uh, I know what people are going to say though. I know what people are going to say. Yeah, well. There aren't any harms, you know, it couldn't hurt. Oh, but it could. The uh, United States Preventative Services Task Force recently updated their recommendations just under a year ago, last April 2021. They found 36 different studies with over 5,000 different adverse events, uh, reported adverse events just from the previous year. That's not nothing. That's not yeah, nothing. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be out to, to scare people on nope. vitamin D because I, I do think is the risk super high. I don't think it's super high, but just nope. because the risk, you know, is low, it's a not zero. And that's not a reason to do something necessarily if the potential for benefit is also not high as it's not in our Correct. estimation for, for, for most people. You could, you know, you could spend your entire life doing a whole bunch of things that are probably, probably safe with a theoretical benefit, even though there's like actually not a benefit to it. <laughs> yeah, correct. Uh, can you think of a disease, any disease process that presents with high vitamin D levels outside of like a vitamin D producing tumor, which I don't know that I 
am aware of. I know yeah. like you would go there, you would find that by like, like hypercalcemia. So there's high mm -hmm. levels of calcium, like primary hyperparathyroidism and like certain types of granulomatous. Yeah. So this is getting into a little, some internal medicine nerd stuff, but granulomatous conditions, which can be some of which can be autoimmune, inflammatory, sarcoidosis, stuff like that. And then certain kinds of infections that can cause granulomas can do it too, because that can they, generate they vitamin D. Oh, they do actually generate vitamin D. Yeah. I was the wondering like, you, themselves make it. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, do you get there like from hypercalcemia? You're like, what the heck is causing this? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Interesting. There, there yes. you go. There's didn't know that we were doing internal medicine boards review on the, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> very, yeah, that was an interesting, uh, interesting to read your response there. Cause it was super useful. And then also again, get to talk about our favorite co-star of the <laughs> podcast as of late vitamin D yeah. once again, would not recommend outside of very specific instances, which are discussed at length in our vitamin D podcast. Okay. Last but not least, this is my favorite thing that happened in the last month from like a learning standpoint. All right. So this is a paper or not a paper, um, but this is an article that was published on uh, medium and it, the title is they swore by the diet I created, but I completely made it up. So this guy, Alan Levinovitz, he's a professor of religion at James Madison university where Michael Ray, uh, was previously teaching at, uh, he wrote a book called the gluten lie and effectively starts out with this. Uh, he, so he's a, like I said, he's a professor in religion and he starts out with the, this discussion uh, that the founders of Taoism, uh, advised a grain free diet as they claimed that grains were the scissors that cut off life. And he goes through like all of this pseudoscience, like how to spot pseudoscience, um, even though he's not a nutrition, like nutrition scientist or anything like that. Uh, but he's very familiar with religion in particular Chinese religion. And, uh, that's kind of where this intersects. In any case, he has an appendix at the end of the book <laughs> that's called the unpacked diet. This is, it, it was, he wrote it in satire. All right. But he, <laughs> he, he has in the appendix called the unpacked diet. And it, the claim of the unpacked diet was that, uh, it's not actually the food that's causing all these modern, uh, health, these modern illnesses, uh, but rather it's the food packaging. So like the BPA lined cans, aluminum foil, plastic, et cetera. And so you just need to eat foods that don't come in any of that stuff and you'll be healthy. And on the next, the very next page, he goes through like, yeah, these are all the pseudoscientific claims in there. Here's how you would identify them, et cetera. The problem was people started writing to him on Moss, just being like, Hey, so where can I find out more? about the unpacked diet. Like, are these coffee filters, unbleached coffee filters? Like, did those, can those be included in the diet? <laughs> and it's like, so just to be clear, so that folks understand what happened here, because I think I shared this article in, their, in our, in our group, he wrote a book illustrating how people throw pseudoscientific bullshit at you in the context of diets. And then the next chapter was an example of a completely made up diet supported by a bunch of pseudoscientific bullshit claims in order to illustrate how it's done. And then people immediately started buying into this diet, doing it and swearing by it. Is it yeah, yeah. In the actual Incredible. book. Incredible. <laughs> I was like, oh man, this is, yeah, this is, this is wild. So, uh, when he's writing this article, he's like, yeah, these are the same problems that I tried to work through with my students when I try to get them, uh, you know, I assume he's teaching philosophy classes in addition to just the straight up Chinese religion courses, you know, and he's like, beware of panaceas, beware of people, you know, claiming secret knowledge hidden by conspiracies they don't want you to know about, um, you know, and opinions and recommendations that 
rely heavily on individual anecdote and testimonials, appeals to antiquity or historical sort of things like, oh, back, you know, a thousand years ago, we used to do this. It's like, yeah, well, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't really matter. Yeah, exactly. So this kind of creates a bigger discussion point that we can wrap this podcast up with is like what to do about misinformation. I just did a podcast recently with Jim uh, Ellie, uh, and I think, oh man, the other host, I feel like his name was Tyson. It starts with a T for sure. And if it's not Tyson, sorry, buddy. I know you actually listen to this and I know you actually listen to the whole episode. So I'm sorry if I messed that up, but it was on misinformation. So that's over available on their podcast platform uh, channel, Zao Strength, Z-A-O Strength. Uh, and so, yeah, we were just kind of wrapping about what to do about misinformation and like a couple of things because I dug into the research on misinformation and social on social media platforms. And like, man, some of the findings are absolutely wild. It's like there is an, it, you know, but not surprising. I mean, inverse relationship between the number of followers you have and like the quality of your posts, uh, particularly for looking at people with greater than a hundred thousand followers. Uh, people tend to be less vigilant when there's like this community support. So if a post has a ton of likes and shares or whatever, people let their guard down and they're like, yeah, that, that makes sense. And so it's like what to do about it. Uh, there is some decent evidence uh, on what's this idea called inoculation. Uh, this can work when there's like uh, when the misinformation is based on false expert consensus. This has been most well studied in climate change. So effectively, you teach people early on in their education, educational careers, how to like spot misinformation um, and you're effectively inoculating them against a virus. Uh, again, oh boy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> let's not go back into that. But, but the idea is like you have, you expose people to misinformation you kind of point out like, and here's how you could tell. The problem is that that works when there's like, again, uh, expert consensus versus false expert consensus. And you kind of, and you can, uh, uh, rely on, on those uh, works less well when they're like powerful individual anecdotes. And so I, I was struggling with like coming up with a recommendation to like counter that from people are like, I did this thing and it cured my autoimmune disease or it like, you know, restored my vision or whatever. And it's like, do I like then counter that with another powerful anecdote, even though I know that that's trash from like, a scientific perspective does it actually hurt our cause or like is it all about the individual at that point like all right well if i can get them to consider their stance on this maybe that's the win i don't know what do you what do you what do you think about this like how what are the best ways you think to like counter misinformation particularly in the health and fitness spaces yeah this is super tough i don't know that i have a great answer for this i mean obviously we have you know our strategies that that we employ in terms of um you know the strategies that we use to gather information, the way we put out information, I think really important for us is like how cautious we are about or how cautious we try to be with uh, some of the claims that we make, um, which I would argue is uh, probably underappreciated by most of the the audience. In other words, like you guys may not know, you know, uh, um, how cautious and careful we try to be with some of the claims we make. It would be very easy for us um, to just go off and start making up all kinds of stuff and spouting it off very confidently. There are lots of people out there who do that, even in the like, quote unquote, evidence-based scene, because you could find an abstract that says something and you can, you know, turn it into a video or a post. And and if you put some statistics on it and you have a degree after your name, most people are not going to go and look up the 
actual paper and see if it you know is actually consistent with what you said. Um, Unless your name's Austin Baraki and you get triggered enough <laughs> by somebody saying that zinc supplementation could reduce the risk of pneumonias by half. Yes. Yeah, I have no problem just saying that this was a Rhonda Patrick post. She does this nonstop all the time. Um, mostly data that she objectively, like it can, you can tell, doesn't really know what she's reading, to be honest. Um, but this was an example. I mean, this just happened earlier today. It was like cited this as a randomized controlled trial of zinc supplementation to do this. And I, I was like, okay, let me look it up because, hey, I would love to prevent half of pneumonia since I see and treat patients in septic shock from pneumonia all the time. And it uh, turns out like in the first sentence of the paper, uh, it said this observational study <laughs> was, and it's like, okay, so there we go. Not a randomized controlled trial. And I would have hoped, I would have expected somebody who has a PhD in a you know scientific discipline um, to be able to recognize that and to be more honest about it with their audience. And so I'm not necessarily attributing malicious motives, but no. if it's not malicious, it's incompetence, in which case, why do you have a gigantic following? It's like, you know, it's really, <laughs> that's, that's the world we live in. So, I mean, honestly, when I look at like this idea of belief change in people, we've talked about the street epistemology guys on here before, and they do a remarkable job at having these kind of conversations with people. The, the tough thing though, is that it is a massive undertaking to have that kind of a conversation with somebody. It is so much energy and effort and, and, and uh, careful listening. And it's like, there's certain situations where we have the ability to do that, the resources to do that. We have the audience, uh, maybe a, a, a one-on-one one on a small group kind of conversation to have that. But by and large, like social media is not the way nope. like, there's no coming back. I mean, social media is just, it is a massive part of the problem. Um, it is, you know, hard to, hard to say really <laughs> whether it's done. Uh, um, uh, it's done some good. Uh, I would argue it probably has done more harm than good to be honest. Ooh, hot take. I love that. That's, yeah. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Maybe true. So I don't, I don't, I don't know that I have a great solution for it, like a giant umbrella. Cause I think there's probably so many, you know, smaller factors, you know, individual, uh, kind of idiosyncrasies that each, that like each person is what draws them to a particular source and, and what that is, what it is about it that they like. And again, I think that's why a lot of these things need to be challenged or if, if they're going to be challenged, that kind of like more one-on-one -on -one engagement is what is more likely to succeed than you know, just me making a counter post or something like that. That's typically just going to change no minds, you know? Right. So what's the yeah. point? Resonate in our own echo chamber of people who are already kind of like thinking about this in similar ways. Yeah. I do think that, you know, that, that's not, you know, our quote on, you know, echo chamber, our audience is valuable in that. I think they, um, obviously there's some element of trust that they have in, in us. And so I know, even though I would like for them to chase after our references and look at them and say, Hey, mm -hmm. hold our feet to the fire and say, are these guys bullshitting me? I know that a lot of them are not necessarily doing that, but they, um, hopefully as a result of the content or the discussions or criticisms that we make of, of stuff, maybe they, um, even if it's later in life compared to like your primary secondary education have been undergone, maybe this inoculation process that you talk about where it's like, okay, maybe if somebody says that there's like, you know, if you sit in a sauna, you have like a 75% decreased chance of like cardiac death, that that seems too good to be true. And it's probably not right. right yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if somebody said that my, so this is a, yeah, we can, we can end with just like our critical thought process here. Right. So if somebody made the claim, like, yeah, if you do sauna daily reduces your risk of major adverse cardiac event by half, some big number, even if it's 10%. Massive number. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's ten percent, which you're like, ah, ten percent. That that's a that is a lot. 
Like that's a, a lot of heart attacks per year that you prevented. <laughs> totally right. I, my f- initial response to that is there's no way that that is true, but uh, I'd like to find out if it is. Uh, and so and so the kind of two roads diverge into the you know or two paths diverge into the woods, and uh, which one do you take? Right? Is okay. Well, who said it? Right? Because if it's somebody who is definitively a non-expert in the field. My inclination to chase down that citation and do like a critical appraisal, you know, for me of that paper or the, the primary source, or whatever, is relatively low because I'm like, I don't trust that this was, quote, you know, cited in any sort of meaningful way. Very similar to what you experienced today with the zinc quote, right? It's like, yeah, that's probably not true. And I have other stuff to spend my time on, so I'm probably less inclined to like follow that up. Uh, but you know, if the person seems reasonably well educated, and you know, I'm like, mm, all right, I'm gonna track this down. So then I'm gonna go pull the paper. And at, by this point, I have a we have eliminated ninety nine point nine 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 percent of posts of misinformation and or disinformation on the internet. Uh, and this was that's actually an evidence based number. Okay, because they they review they these uh, researchers rev- uh, created this computer learning program that effectively went through and scanned all of these Instagram accounts that they like fed in to the system to search for like citations right provided either in the comments or in the the actual caption and then uh, educational uh, like uh, accolades in the bio right so <laughs> we've if if you use just that like sort of algorithm you're like okay cool well, now i'm at 0.001 percent of you know information on on social media and then you go to the paper and it's like all right well where was this paper published and you're like okay it wasn't actually published in any sort of journal it's a preprint or it's in uh it's on a blog or something like that you're like Again, I don't really know how strongly I feel about following this up because like it hasn't even <laughs> made it to somewhere I can care about it yet, right? But let's just say it is published in an actual academic journal. You're like, well, what journal is it in? I'm probably less interested than if it's in JAMA or New England Journal of Medicine or another reputable journal that while they have made mistakes, just like every other journal has made mistakes, you just, the quality at face value is uh, a little bit higher and the process of how papers get in there is more transparent you know, versus like, is this other journal like Paper for profit? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Is it even real? Does it still exist? Like what's the peer review process? Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Is there a peer review review process? Okay. So then at that point, now I've made it to the paper and then I'm just, I start, I look, I, I look at the methodology and if that kind of checks out, then I'm like, great. So in the discussion section, like where has this been looked at elsewhere? Has this, you know, what's the contrasting data, et cetera. And then how does that fit in with what I currently know? That's like my process for like evaluating a claim and then say, well, does this shift the way I feel about it now or no, but invariably, even if it doesn't shift, like where, how I actually feel at, at the end of all of that process, I definitely learned something along the way, you know, just by reading through the discussion in particular and evaluating the results. Cause I'm like, Oh, I didn't, I wasn't aware of this paper or this other paper or this particular view or potential explanation. So that's all useful stuff, but just think how overwhelming it would be to do that for every claim. Cause you got to quote unquote, think for yourself. And, and, and I'm only doing this for stuff that I'm like pretty educated in, like that I could, again, charitably using the term expert, like am an expert ish in, uh, I'm not looking at like 
engineering papers or like <laughs> economics right. papers. Cause I'm like, I, I don't know what this means. And like, I don't have the, 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 the skill set to evaluate this stuff. So when people are like, how do I get better at reading papers? And I'm like, uh, have a very well-developed fund of knowledge on a particular topic that you're going to be reading primary research in yeah. pr- probably requiring formal training on some level. And if you don't have that, I don't know that that's the best use of your time. Yeah. You might need to start with like a textbook before you get to like primary literature or something like that. If you don't have the knowledge to actually read the, or, you know, to understand what's in the, in the literature itself. Yeah. And, and if you have expertise in another field, I think, you know, if time is a finite resource, uh, you know, maybe focus on that versus, you know, tr- trying to be an expert in everything. Uh, yeah. You anyway. may have to out, you may have to outsource a bit of your, you know, uh, uh, ideas, beliefs to people who you choose to set some amount of trust in. I mean, it's like, even clinically, I'm a physician. I see patients who are entrusting their care to me. And there may be certain things that um, I may not be an expert in and I have to call in a consultant, a subspecialist or something like that. And that subspecialist may come in and they may know what to do, or they may make a recommendation and we do it. And it's like, you know, am I necessarily going and tracking down every reference behind the things that they're recommending that I do for, for the patient? Not always. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if they recommend something that strikes me as odd, I'm like, oh, maybe there's an opportunity to learn here. But it's like, this is happening across the entire spectrum basically and I, and I like again to quote the like the the approach that the street epistemology guys use when they're when they're engaging with somebody on this it's like starting out with like okay scale of like zero to 100 how confident are you in this and then what kind of evidence would it take to move this degree of confidence up or down by you know whatever amount or to 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 whatever point because you're you know our confidence in in most of the claims effectively everything we talk about is never zero or 100 it's somewhere mm-hmm. on a spectrum in between and a lot of that stuff gets shifted, you know, over time based on new evidence or experience or combination of all this kind of stuff. So, uh, does your process about like how you go about evalu- evaluating a claim, is that much different than mine? You think? Uh, I think it's probably pretty similar. I think there's a, a kind of like what you said, a spectrum of how much I care to, yeah, to follow right up now. on the thing. Our criteria for following up on stuff may be a little bit different now and then, just depending on what our pet topics are. Sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, but otherwise, pretty similar. Yeah. If it's like the you know comparison of two different lipid like <laughs> screening <laughs> tools, I'm like I I want to care, but I, I can't I can't right now because I'm completely satisfied with the current iteration of the NLA yeah. guidelines, for example. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anything else you want to leave readers with that's, uh, been on your mind? I don't think so. I think I'll, you know, we'll start collecting for the next one. Yeah. I'm going to start, maybe we'll do a segment at the end of each podcast. We'll call it Austin's corner and I'll just play like heartwarming music for you to become introspective for a period to see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I assume that you're just going to hop off the call, but yeah, <laughs> very cool. All right. Well, this has been episode 166 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. Thanks to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, on this podcast. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Catch us here next week and every week uh, to get the latest podcast. See you.